Well, we're continuing tonight to look at uh, the lives of the 12 apostles, and we're going to look at uh, Thomas this evening. The world has a way of forgetting the good things in a person's life. We have a tendency so often to judge people by a single glaring mistake that they make. I think of Mark Antony's funeral oration in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. Some of us probably had to read that back when we were in high school. And if you remember, he begins, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. The evil that men do lives after them. The good is often turred with their bones. We see that same thing repeatedly in history. For example, if you're a history buff at all, or if, well, if you've ever just seen an old Western movie, you probably know the name George Armstrong Custer. But what you might not know is that Custer was made a general in the Union Army at the age of only 23 years old, making him one of the Civil War's youngest general officers. And less than a week after his promotion, he fought a delaying action against Confederate cavalry under Jeb Stuart during the lead-up to the Battle of Gettysburg that effectively blinded the Army of Northern Virginia. And then during the Battle of Gettysburg, Custer personally led a countercharge that saved the Union right and uh, kept uh, support away from Pickett's charge that was going on simultaneously. But all we know about Custer is his infamous last stand when he badly miscalculated and put his 700 troopers up against 2,500 Sioux and Cheyenne warriors and the result was the complete annihilation of all of those soldiers under his direct command. Or I think of a name some of you might not know. Some may, I don't know. If you were like me, when I was a kid, I liked to read about football players, football stories from old days. And there's a famous name, Roy Regals. Now, Roy Regals was an excellent center at the University of California. He was a captain of the 1929 team. He was a first-team All-American. But nobody knows that. If you've ever heard the name Roy Regals at all, you only know about him because he's responsible for probably the most legendary gaffe in all of college football history. When in the 1929 Rose Bowl, he scooped up a Georgia Tech fumble and ran it back 55 yards toward his own goal line. Now they finally got him stopped and turned around, but Georgia Tech tackled him at the one. Ultimately, they scored a safety. Georgia Tech went on to win the game eight to seven. And Roy Regals went down in history as Roy Wrong Way Regals. Well, that same thing is precisely what's happened to Thomas. Doubting Thomas, as we better know him. He's, he's earned a nickname, too. But I'm not sure that that moniker is entirely fair to Thomas. He was a better man than his reputation suggests. There are many instances that we encounter of his deep faith. But we remember him almost exclusively because of his doubts. Now, I think it'd be fair to say that Thomas was 
a pessimistic person. He was melancholy. He was brooding. He was angst-ridden. He was, he was a lot like Eeyore in Winnie the Pooh, I guess. He was one of those people who was always expecting the worst to happen. Pessimism seems to have been his besetting sin. Not doubt. Like some of the other apostles that we've seen in the last few weeks, all we know about Thomas we find from the Gospel of John. And while we see his negativity there for sure, we also see some wonderful, redeeming characteristics come through. And it shows to us that Thomas was much more than a doubter. I think the first thing that stands out is his courage. We first seriously get a glimpse into Thomas in John chapter 11. Now, if you don't remember the context here, Jesus receives word that his friend Lazarus is gravely ill. And so he resolves immediately to go back to Bethany and to see him. But the disciples knew that all of Jesus' enemies were in the vicinity. In fact, he just left Judea precisely because they were trying to kill him. He'd gone out into the wilderness in the area where John used to preach. So they weren't eager to go to Bethany. Bethany was a, essentially a suburb of Jerusalem. It's like walking right into the lion's den here. And so when Jesus announces that he's going, they think that he has absolutely lost his mind. John 11 and verse number 8, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? You know, it's reminding him there as subtly as they can, that, hey, Lord, uh, don't you remember the whole reason we're out here? They're trying to kill you. Do you, do you really want to go back? In response, Jesus makes his intention clear in verse number 11. He says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. They missed his meaning, though. And so they say, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Well, you know, he probably just needs his rest. Sometimes that can be the best sort of medicine. We ought not to go and bother him. There's no reason for us to even go. But then, of course, verse 13 tells us Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. And now they understood. Jesus had to go back. But this is devastating news as far as the disciples are concerned. If Jesus goes back, he's a dead man. There's no way around it. His fate is sealed. But Jesus' mind is made up. He's going back no matter what they say. And that's when Thomas speaks up. Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now that's pessimistic, sure. <laughs> and that's characteristic of Thomas, as we said. But that's heroic, isn't it? That's courageous. He thinks he's going in facing certain death, and Thomas is more than willing to stand there right alongside him. 
Thomas could only see disaster ahead. He didn't see any way around it. But if that's the way it's going to be, Thomas is determined to see it through to the end. He's not going to abandon his Lord. It's not easy to be a pessimist. <laughs> Seeing the worst in everything is a miserable way to live. Now, this would have been a much easier statement for an optimist to make. Well, let's go ahead and go back. I, I'm sure the Lord has things under control. One way or another, this is going to work out. Thomas doesn't see it this way. All he sees is doom and gloom. We're going to die with him. But let's go anyway. That's a tremendously courageous stand that he takes there. That courage was rooted in the second great characteristic that comes through about Thomas, his devotion to the Lord. Thomas didn't want to be without Jesus. And if Jesus was going to die, Thomas was prepared to go ahead and to die with him. That love and devotion that he felt comes through again in our, our second story that we want to look at from John chapter 14. Now, this is the last night of Jesus' life. They're in the upper room with the twelve. We've looked at this incident in other lessons during this series before, but uh, you remember he tells them about his imminent departure. He tells them that he's going away. He's going to prepare a place for them. But he also tells them that they know the way there. And that's when Thomas speaks up. In verse number five, Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? There's Thomas's pessimism again. We don't know where you're going. How can we possibly know the way to get there? It would have been better, you can almost see him thinking, it would have been better to die with him. Because at least then we wouldn't be separated with him. He's going to go away and we're not going to be able to follow because we don't know how to get there. But more importantly than that, it reveals to us the deep devotion that he had to Jesus. Thomas never wanted to be separated from Jesus. His heart is broken at the thought of being parted from him. He's so completely and totally devoted to the Lord. He would have been glad to die with Jesus. He couldn't think about the possibility of living without him. Thomas's devotion to Christ is admirable. But it also reveals to us here, it underlines for us what was his absolute worst fear. Being separated from Jesus. And we know that Thomas's worst fears came to pass. Jesus died. Thomas didn't. And that brings us to our final glimpse into Thomas in John chapter 20. After Jesus' death, all of the disciples had banded together here in fear, in sorrow, in, in solidarity. All of them except for Thomas, that is. John 20, verse 24, it says that Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. You see, Jesus came and he appeared to them. They were there in a locked room and, and Jesus came into it anyway. 
Suddenly, unexpectedly, he showed them the scars in his hands and in his side. And it says that when he showed them that, they were glad. It says that up in verse number 21. They were comforted by that. But Thomas missed that whole thing. Why wasn't he there? Well, it says that they were meeting there secretly because they were afraid of the Jews. Is it possible that Thomas was just so afraid that he didn't want to come out of hiding at all, even to meet up with his friends? I suppose that's possible. But I think what's more likely here is that Thomas, who was so devoted to Christ, who was ready, according to what he said, to die with him, is now so dejected because Jesus is dead that he doesn't know how to cope. He doesn't know what to do. He's completely and totally lost here in this situation. Remember, this is his worst fear. His worst fears have been realized. Jesus is gone, and Thomas is, is never going to see him again. Maybe he's even thinking back to the upper room. Maybe he's thinking, well, we're, I don't know the way to where he went. We're never going to be able to find him now. So when the other disciples get together and they tell him that we have seen the Lord, they're excited about it. Remember, it says they were glad when they saw Jesus. So, so they're enthusiastic. They want to share that with Thomas. Melancholy, pessimistic Thomas... He's not in the mood for that. He can't allow himself to believe that. That's just too good to be true. He can't allow his hopes to get up like that. And so in verse 25, when the other disciples tell him, we've seen the Lord, he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And that, of course, is why we call him Doubting Thomas. Don't you think that's a little bit harsh? Remember that the other disciples didn't believe without seeing either. Luke chapter 24, it tells us there that when the women found the empty tomb and they run back and they tell the apostles, it says there, Luke 24 verse 11, these words seem to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. But when Jesus appeared to them there and he showed them his hands and he showed them his side, well, then they believed. You see, they had to see in order to believe too. So what sets Thomas apart is not that his doubt was greater. The other apostles doubted just the same way that he did. What sets him apart may be that his despair was greater than the others. He couldn't allow himself to believe this good news. Well, a week later, Jesus appeared to them again, and this time Thomas was there, and of course, no one needed to tell him what Thomas said. In verse 27, he says to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus is not nearly as hard on poor Thomas as we are a lot of the time. Thomas had made a mistake because of his pessimism, sure. 
But this is a mistake that's born out of this great love, this affection, this devotion that he has to Jesus. Jesus sympathized with his weakness. Jesus was tender with him. And that's when Thomas, in response, makes one of the greatest statements, maybe the greatest statement that any of the twelve make in all of the gospel accounts. Verse 28, Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. That is not a doubter. That is the strongest, most profound statement of faith imaginable. Think about this. A, a Jewish man, a monotheist who is taught from the time he's a boy, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's only one God. And here he's equating Jesus with God. Thomas, in that moment, goes from a doubter to a great evangelist. And we see just a few days later, he's there with the rest of the twelve on Pentecost. Along with the others, he receives the Holy Spirit. He's equipped for his ministry. And then even though we don't read any details about what he did in Acts, just like the rest, he went out fulfilling that commission that Jesus gave to them to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. According, <clears throat> according to tradition, Thomas ultimately was a missionary to India. He carried the gospel over there where uh, he was killed. He was martyred, run through with a spear, according to tradition. See, there was so much more to Thomas than doubting. He was courageous Thomas. He was devoted Thomas. And I encourage us to think about these admirable qualities that he exhibited. Let's strive to emulate those. Let's strive especially to demonstrate that same sort of love and devotion to the Lord that Thomas demonstrated. Maybe you're here this evening and you haven't had that same sort of love that you ought to have for the Lord. Maybe on account of that, you need to make changes in your life tonight. If that's the case, if we can help you in any way, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing.